heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Growing up, I think this might be an indicator of what it was like to raise me and my siblings, but it seemed like my parents were just hooked on all these parenting radio shows and books and stuff like that, and, and they'd listen to them while we were in the car going places, and there was one parenting radio show that we listened to back in the day where they did this kind of jacked up thing where they had this family ex- trust building exercise, and they put a bunch of pokey things, and I, I want to say they said mouse traps, but I just like, I feel like that wouldn't be okay. Like that'd be like make a phone call kind of situation. So I'm going to say it was just pokey things. It was a long time ago. And they blindfolded their kids one at a time. And they said, uh, you know, get to the other side of the living room. Uh, and if you want help, ask. And mom and, mom and I will, will guide you through the pokey things. And so, of course, the, the kids... <clears throat> The young children, maybe like eight and under of this family, they were just like, uh, help me. Like, I don't understand what the point of this is. Like, I can't do it. I don't want to step on anything pokey. But of course, the teenager had to try to do it by themselves and, and you know, ended up stepping on things and hopping around and getting hurt and stuff, and everybody laughed at them. Uh, I don't recommend this exercise. <laughs> I don't tell this story. Be like, hey, parents, build trust this way. Uh, and shame your kids when they don't trust you. I, I, I don't necessarily recognize, recommend this exercise. But I, I tell that story because I think it kind of gets at uh, the, the heart of what Jesus is, is, is getting at here, which is the surrendering ourselves, dying to ourself, versus the all-by-myself mentality. That is just the air we breathe. I think as humans, and particularly as Americans, don't tread on me. Is I'll do it by myself. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, which is an oxymoron that we love in our culture, which is so strange. That all by myself, I got this idea that would cause a goofy teenager to make a fool of himself is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to. The dying to ourself, the surrendering ourself. It's a movement, if you will, the dying to ourself, I want us to think of it in terms of moving from uh, being an orphan, where we really are by, all, all by ourselves. And we have no other choice but to try to make it through the pokey things on our own, to being a, a beloved child, just like the little children who were humble enough in their childlike state to just say, hey, I need help, I can't do this, I'm not even going to try. So that's what we see Jesus dealing with here. He doesn't, uh, in, in this passage that we're in, in Matthew 5, he's sandwiched it between two really scary statements where he says, your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. You need to be better at following rules than the people whose full-time job it was to follow rules. 
And then he ends, we'll see next week, with the statement, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in between, he gives us these six statements that, on first blush, are are really kind of scary. But as we unpack them, we see that they are invitations into human flourishing, that Jesus is calling us to flourish. He's calling us, uh, just like a branch flourishes when it's abiding in the vine like we read, it produces fruit, it's alive. We flourish when we abide in Christ. He says, when you abide in, when you follow my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's not necessarily a conditional statement in the sense that if you obey me, then I'll love you. But he's saying, if you want to experience my love, then, then obey me. In all of these six statements that Jesus gives us, he talks about anger, he talks about lust, divorce, lying, and deceit. He starts with an Old Testament law. We've kind of talked about it like a, a heart burger, a three-part deal. The, there, there's a, a bun on both sides that are actions, where he starts with an Old Testament law, and then he gets to the heart issue, what God is really concerned about, what the point of the law is. The law isn't the end of itself. It's meant to point to our hearts. And then he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't say, like, hey, just withdraw from society, shut yourself into a closet, and get your heart right. Before you do anything, he says, no, this is the heart issue, and then you obey me, follow these these rules, these actions, because they'll shape and they'll transform your heart as you do them. He's showing us what it means to be human, and what goes on inside of us determines what we do, and what we do also begins to shape our our insides as well. We We can't separate them. So, for example, just by way of, of recap, we, we looked at, at adultery, the adultery heartburger. Or Jesus starts with the rule, the law of God, don't commit adultery. That's good advice. And the reason that, that's good, the reason that we can see God's love in that is because societies flourish. Marriages flourish when there's less adultery. But that isn't enough. Because he says the heart issue, you have the same brokenness, the same sin, the same issue in your heart that is going on in adultery, even in lust. It's not enough just to keep yourself from the physical act of adultery. The point of the adultery heartburger is is to point us to the reality that when lust and adultery are issues, it means our hearts haven't been satisfied with God. We haven't experienced it, and we don't really believe, if we're honest, that Jesus can satisfy our souls. So we look to other things to get satisfaction. And so he gives us something to do with our bodies to help create that satisfaction, or for, to help us experience that satisfaction. He says this crazy stuff, gouging out your eye, cutting out your arm, cutting off your arm. He's using this extreme language to show how important the heart issue is. Getting satisfied by Jesus What's more important than that? Are your eyes and your arms more important than that? So we talked like directly with lust. There's things you can cut out. You can get rid of your smartphone or your computer. You can cut things out. Don't watch certain shows that you know will have you know, lustful opportunities in them. But on a bigger sense, Jesus is calling us to fast. Why does Jesus call us to fast? Is it a way to get his attention? Is it a way to punish ourselves when we feel bad about something we did, so we're going to do without food, so we feel hungry and sad? No, fasting is an invitation to cut things out, whether it's food or sugar or TV or or whatever, to create space so our hearts can be satisfied. 
It's like we have a cup and we say we want to fill our cups with Jesus, but it's already full of other stuff. So fasting is pouring out our cup a little bit. Give space for Jesus to satisfy those needs. To be reminded that ultimately the physical hunger we might feel in fasting is really pointing to a spiritual hunger that we have for the bread of life. A spiritual thirst that we have for the living water that is Jesus. So that's a recap of the adultery heartburger. And I think this, this pattern that starts with an action, gets to the heart, and then ends with an action. An invitation to obey, to abide in Jesus' love by obeying. So let's dive into our text. We're looking at the fifth heartburger. Almost done with these heartburgers. If you're tired of me talking about it, looking at that egg yolky burger that we have on the screen. This is the retaliation heartburger, the do not resist evil heartburger. Verse 38, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. On the first blush, this sounds really harsh and graceless. Hey, I thought God was a God of mercy and grace. Why is this Old Testament law that seems so harsh that you would rip out someone's tooth if they punch you and you lost a tooth? But I I hope you're you're picking up that there's a strong connection between love and law. As we've looked at each one of these Old Testament laws through this passage, we see that it was God's love towards his people that he gave them this law. Just to bring it into our lives, is it loving parents or unloving parents that give their kids laws, guidelines? Don't drink the chemicals under the sink. Don't run into the street. Don't spend your whole life staring at a screen. It's love that would draw parents to engage and keep their kids from stuff that would destroy them. This is what God did with the law. And it's really kind of weird to see in other parts of the Old Testament, before Jesus came and everything, where you see people say, I delight in your law, God. I meditate about it in the watches of the night on my bed. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty intimate. Why would people like rules so much? Why would they love the law of God so much? Why would they meditate on it and delight in it? Well, it's because it shows that God's good, that he cares for them. He doesn't leave them to themselves, that he's involved. So for this whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth idea, in the Old Testament, when God gave this law, the idea was to stop a disproportionate, and vengeful kind of justice. Because as harsh as this law seems, it's really a limit. If someone gouged out your eye, typically, in in human nature, or in sin nature, we're not cold, seeking equal justice. We want to kill them. If someone hurts us, we don't want to just measure it back to them equal. We want to go above and beyond. So this law was stemming the tide of a vengeful, hot-blooded, disproportionate justice. So instead of a life for an eye, it's an eye for an eye. And if you look at this in the Old Testament, the law expounds to show that this is not dealt out on an individual basis. Someone hurts you, you, it's not up to you to hurt them back. But it's it's judges that kind of are governing governing the people that deal out... uh, Limited justice, equal justice, not vengeful justice. So that's the first, the first bun of our heartburger. Now Jesus gets at the, gets at the heart 
Look in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What in the world? What is happening here? Now this week, studying for the sermon was exhausting. Because this passage is so uncomfortable. It gets at so many different issues in our own souls. And issues in government and culture. And it, it's absconded by all kinds of other interests and agendas and political things. And people get really riled up. And everybody is scrambling to reframe it. Everybody's so quick to say what Jesus is not saying here. Because we all get it. We, if you're not uncomfortable with this passage, then you might not have heard it or read it. Because it, it is uncomfortable. And it's not bad to, to bring what Jesus is saying into the context of Scripture. And we'll do that a little bit. But my heart today is to focus on what Jesus is saying and not what, he's not, not what he's not saying. So if you get uncomfortable, if you have questions, we can talk about them. But I just don't want to miss what Jesus is calling us to here as children of God by nuancing it to, to a chaotic degree. The do not resist evil part of the heartburger is Jesus' invitation to human flourishing by dying to ourselves. To lay down our rights, our security, our stuff, our comfort, our control, our, our own desire for vengeance. And one of the most helpful things in studying scripture is to let scripture interpret scripture. What other passage might inform the one we're studying? Well, later on in Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 16... Uh, verse 24 and 25, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The heart issue behind not resisting evil is to die to ourselves, having surrendered our lives, our rights, our stuff, in the face of evil. Why? Because our lives, our rights, our stuff, our security is now secure in Christ. Our satisfaction in our souls is now secure in Christ. We trust that he's good, that he's with us, that he's present to us, and that by grace we're his children. While the Old Testament law was simply trying to carve out a little order around the chaos of sinful human vengeance... Vigilante justice. Jesus moves beyond chaos management and into human flourishing. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, people who have said, I am yours, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. And he says, we flourish when we are so surrendered to our identity in Christ that we die to ourselves. And this is what's so crazy. This is where the rubber meets the road. We die to ourselves to the point where we can absorb evil. We can absorb injustice towards us. In the same way that Jesus did. Jesus shows us what this means. What this looks like. This is difficult teaching. Justice is very close to God's heart. God is a God of justice. So often in Scripture, we're called to seek justice for the poor and the oppressed and the fatherless and the widows. But we see in this passage that that is distinctly different from seeking justice for ourselves. 
Why? What's the difference there? Well, in order to consider what it would mean to seek justice for ourselves, we have to be really honest with ourselves. What would justice for us be? What would be the most fair thing for you and for me? And if we're honest with ourselves, and even if we can't be honest with ourselves, we can, but we can at least understand what Scripture says is true about you and me, is that we're not innocent. That we, we are not on the side of justice. Well, yes and amen, others hurt us and sin against us, and we have suffering in our lives that we are victims of. Scripture says that we are both sufferers and sinners. None of us are only victims. We are both sinners and sufferers. The vengeance we might want to deal out to others should if we're being strictly fair, be dealt back to us. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God that in, in his mercy, we don't get what we deserve. We don't get fairness. What's fair about the innocent son of God, Jesus, dying for my sin and for your sin? But Jesus did not seek justice for himself, but instead he absorbed evil. He absorbed injustice. For my sake, for your sake. And then by grace, we get what we, we don't deserve, which is adoption into God's family. We become God's beloved children, we who were once hostile to him, his enemies. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I think he gives us a really helpful summary. I think we could view this as a summary of what the heart of a follower of Jesus is, what Jesus' heart posture he's looking for here. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is Christ who lives in me. Jesus, who did not resist evil, but surrendered for my sake and for your sake. He literally died to himself. Crushed for my sin and for your sin. We live in Jesus. as Christ who lives in us, the Son of God. And again, I think one of the most helpful ways, or I hope it's helpful to you, is to think about the difference as we look at the, the bottom bun here which is kind of like a quadruple stack of a bottom bum, is that we, we consider how does an orphan respond in these circumstances? Someone who doesn't feel loved or safe, how would they respond? Versus how does a, a beloved child respond? So let's work through the, the four-part bottom bun here. This is where it gets real uncomfortable. Look in verse 39b. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. There are two things going on in being slapped. Insult and pain. Pain and insult. Because being slapped isn't fun. It hurts. But if there was a way to just limit our reaction to being slapped to just the physical pain, 
our reaction might be like at a five. But then you add the insult, the like, what? And it just gets ratcheted up to 11. It's insulting. It's demeaning on top of, on top of the pain. So what do orphans do? People who feel unloved and unsafe, what do they do when they're insulted and hurt? They react. They fly off the handle. Vengeance is mine, says the orphan. What do well-loved children mean? They're not happy. They don't like it. They don't pretend like they want it to happen again. But children of God are people who have been made new by Jesus and have so surrendered themselves that when they're faced with insult and pain, they can, they can absorb it. They live in this, this sweet, beautiful paradox where they, they see that, yes, I am a beloved child of God. God looks on me with delight. I'm safe. I also don't deserve a lick of it. I don't, I don't deserve to be loved and delighted in and safe. We're, we're even able to die to ourselves to where we can see the people slapping us, literally or, or metaphorically, as orphans, reacting out of their own pain, their own unlovableness or sense of it, their own sense of being unsafe. Jesus absorbed insult and pain on our behalf so we can do that for others. I don't know if Matthew intended this, but look at Matthew 26. This is towards the end of his biography of Jesus. We see this directly play out with Jesus. He's blindfolded in this passage, and it says, They spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus, on his way to the cross, on his way to make, a, make space for us to come to God as his children. N- not only did he die, he was slapped for us. He was insulted and mocked for us. It's this Christ who lives in me. It was Jesus so perfectly rooted in the love he had in the Father did not fight for his own rights and privileges. So why? So that he might seek justice for you and me. He might seek redemption for you and me. He shows us what the children of God are capable of. What this freedom from vengeance and self-defense and indignation. Jesus sought redemption by not resisting evil. Because we are beloved by God we've surrendered our lives. We've died to ourselves. Just like Jesus. And then there's this really crazy passage where it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Why did Jesus get slapped and hit and mocked and nailed to a tree? For the joy set before him. The joy of redemption. The joy of, of being the firstborn among many brothers. This is the same idea that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes earlier, where he says, Blessed are you, flourishing are you, happy are you, when others revile you and persecute you and speak falsely about you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven.
Orphans are feisty. No one's looking out for me, but I will always handle it. Well, if children know they're taken care of, so they're freed from clinging to flimsy, incomplete, worldly forms of vengeance and protection and trust their father. Next, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So this talk of getting sued for our tunic is kind of complex. And he's dealing with our possessions, our personal property. What's, what's the posture of a son of God towards our stuff and our personal possessions? How do orphans, people who don't feel loved or secure, interact with stuff? They hoard it. They fight to keep it. They squabble over every little bit of it. They live hood rich. What's right in front of me is all I got, so I'm going to live it up now. But well-loved children see everything they have as a gift. What's most true about me is that I'm a beloved child who doesn't deserve any of it. Who's a sinner saved by grace. It's not something that I've earned. No matter how hard you work, you haven't earned it because the ability to work hard, the brain that you've given, the lungs that breathe while you work, the muscles that move, the job that you have is all given. And so there's a, a surrender and, and a dying to ourselves with our stuff, our material goods. This frees us up to show up in court, either literally or figuratively, at peace, open-handed. God gives and God takes away. And both in plenty and in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In America, we love our private property. What's mine is mine, and I'll shoot you if you come near. But this is a posture of a hoarding orphan, not a well-loved son or daughter. Christ lives in me. If I, if, if I had a magic wand, I would wave it, and I would rescue Philippians 4.13 from just the hermeneutical atrocities we've done to it in, in our country. I, what's Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We think of it in terms of running a race or swinging a bat, lifting heavy weights or something like that. I can do it. But Paul, in the context where he says that verse in Philippians 4, he's talking specifically in terms of plenty, being in plenty and in want. That's what that verse means. What, what can I do? I, what, what are the all things I can do through Christ who strengthens me? I can be content when I'm broke and I do not have enough. And I can be content when there's plenty, when there's more money, more problems. Through Christ who strengthens me. This is the, the, the heart of a, a Christian, the heart of a son of God, a child of God. Is that you can give me a lot, you can give me a little, and it's God who strengthens me. I've died to myself, I've died to my need to do it, to manage it, to handle it. And again, I don't know if Matthew intended this, but I think it's I think it's kind of poetic. In Matthew twenty seven, thirty five, again, Jesus' road to the cross. Right afterwards it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Jesus literally lost his, lost his cloak and tunic. He lost all his clothes and hung naked on the cross for me and for you. 
and we're going to begrudge someone our stuff because it's not fair? No, we surrender our stuff as we die to ourselves, as we live in Christ, as it's Christ who lives in us. So I think we will, at some point, inevitably, lose our stuff in unfair ways. And it still hurts, and we don't like it. But here's, here's the posture of a Christian. Instead of fighting for it, instead of being bitter or resentful, we let that experience of injustice, as we absorb it, we let it draw our hearts to the gospel, to the reality that Jesus lost everything for us. That in losing our stuff in unfair ways is an invitation to experience more deeply the gospel, more deeply the truth that we are loved, beloved children. Man, here we go. Verse 41, hold on tight. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here Jesus talks about what it looks like to die to ourselves in relationship to the government. There's just no framework today for how horrendously offensive this would have been for Jesus to say. The time he was saying this in Israel, Israel is occupied by the Romans, by the Roman army. Roman army. The Roman army had conquered and was just kind of controlling the country. So there are troops all over the place. Foreign troops oppressing your country, taking food, taking money through taxes, just generally oppressing the Jews, the Israelites. And indeed, part of the hype around Jesus coming some of the reason why his fame spread was because at that time they thought he was going to make Israel great again. And so, so they got a lot of hype for, from Jesus. And so the fact that Jesus was constantly undermining that and running away and, and, and not rising to any kind of political power was really confusing. And in this verse, Jesus is referring to a real-life law that would have been part of these people's regular life where a Roman soldier could, could come up to you no matter what you were doing, and demand that you carry all his stuff, like a pack mule, for a mile. It was like part of the oppression, part of the, the, the law that the Romans enforced. So imagine being in the middle of your work day, and these awful people that are oppressing you make you a pack mule for them. And Jesus says, what? Do a second mile. Go beyond what this oppressive law calls you to do. Jesus says that for his disciples, dying to ourselves, our posture towards the government, even an evil and oppressive government, must be one of surrender. And not only that, but, but generosity, goodwill. Martin Lord-Jones, a pastor from the 50s and 60s, says, As Christians, our state of mind and spiritual condition should be such that no power can insult us. I'm just saying it. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, Jesus' words here, they're an invitation to flourish by leaving any bitterness or resentment that we would have towards the government. And listen, he's talking about a very oppressive, invasive government. Way worse than we have it. 
And as Christians, as secure, beloved children, we can participate in our society and participate in the laws of the land. We're done without bitterness, without fear. Taxes go up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Taxes go down. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why would Jesus say this? Why, why is this surrender to government, surrender to even an oppressive force, how is this connected with the fact that he said, I came to give you life to the full, give you life abundant? Well, it's the same idea as all these other bottom buns. We render to Caesars what is Caesars. We render to the government what belongs to the government. And to God's what is God? God's with joy and fearlessness that comes from being God's children. And you see this all over in our culture. As as things get more polarized, as uh, political battles just become out of control, it's because our sense that God is in control is is pretty much gone from our popular culture. And so now it's the government that's going to save us. So if that's our only hope and salvation, then things are going to get really heated. But if our identity is that as Christians, as we belong to God, he is good, then our hope is way less in the government or laws or fixing it. And we're freed. We're freed from the delusion that both sides have. That if the government was just more like this, then we'd be okay. Jesus says, to gain your life, you must lose it. Our life is not found in perfect autonomy, freedom from oppression, from any kind of limitation from the government, but in Jesus himself, the, ones, the one who was crucified at the hands of this evil Roman government. <laughs> How does Jesus demonstrate going the extra mile to us? With his life. Letting this oppressive government kill kill him, he brought redemption to the whole world. So we can pay our taxes even when we don't want to or they seem absurd or unfair. We can show grace to our leaders. That's all I'm going to say about that. We can live in a, a broken society with joy and peace because it's Christ who lives in us. doesn't mean we like it. None of this means we need to fake a smile and Ned Flanders it. We can mourn the brokenness, but we let it, the way we flourish is we let it draw us into the reality of the gospel. Now verse 42 is our last bottom bun. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It seems a little bit like an outlier. And if you're like me, God help me, you read this and all the arguments and the justification come up. What do you mean, Jesus? I should just keep giving my money to an alcoholic, a drug addict, someone who won't work? The whole welfare state and the opioid crisis and let him who does not work not eat. That's in the Bible. The question, the 
energy behind all those arguments, all those defenses, all those nuances and uh, reasonings is a concern for self. It's our posture towards ourselves that is brought up by the mercy of God when when we're faced with someone in need. How do I know they won't blow it? How do I know they'll pay me back? What if I need it? I always need to have three to six months of living expenses saved up in case of emergency. These are self-questions. These are orphan questions. The point is not in the details. The point is in the heart. Giving to others will shape our hearts to die to self. I feel like this really came to a head in my own life. I think it was last spring or summer. There's a financial independent blogger I like to read called Mr. Money Mustache. He's all about your saving rate, like how much are you saving? And that is so attractive to me to like streamline my life and save more and get financial independence and security. And it was just this really like piercing moment where I felt like I had an option to ratchet up my savings or to ratchet up my givings. And it was just, it just seemed like a question. What kingdom am I buying into? The point is not in the, the details. There is wisdom. We can let other scripture inform how we give to the poor, how we serve the poor, how we lend our money. Saving isn't all bad. But it's the point of like, are we clinging to it as an orphan? Or are we open-handed with our stuff? Because we've died to ourselves. It's Christ who lives in us. Jesus, uh, John Apostle John gives us a really helpful explanation of this teaching in 1 John 3, 16 through 17. He says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What I want us to hear is that our experience of the reality of God's love grows as we give to people in need, as to our brothers in need. Do you want to feel loved by God? Do you want to abide in God's love? Then, then we open our hands to our stuff and we give to our brothers in need. Even at the point of risk. What did Jesus risk For us, death, excruciating pain. He laid down his life, emptied himself, his rights, and we can do that. If we have a brother in need, we open our hearts to him with worldly goods so that our brother's need becomes our need, that he is not bearing that alone. And in doing that, we see that we can do that even if we're afraid. We can, it's not like you have to have arrived in this perfect place of peace and trust in God. It's that Doing this stuff moves us closer to that place of peace and trust. This heartburger is a beast. The bottom bun is huge. Why? Of all the heartburgers we've looked at, why is the bottom bun so big? Why is there so much stuff going on in this? I think it's because this idea of dying to self is so important and so deeply paradoxical. And I, 
because I think you think about dying, when we think about dying to ourselves, it sounds not good. Dying in self is, is not good. But I'd encourage you this week to reflect on what the role of yourself has played in every type of misery that you've ever experienced. I, I would wager that most, if not all, of the unhappiness and failure, pain, disappointment in our lives can probably be boiled back, distilled down to an issue of the self. The strain we feel at work, or irritability, or bad temper, the bad things that we've said or done, the bad things that people have said or done to us. I think a lot of it might come back to this hypersensitivity, this hyper-self-sensitivity. I don't think I'm making it up, because Jesus says, the more you try to keep your life, the more you protect yourself, the more you'll lose it. We cut, we cut off from the sweet dependence of God and meaningful connection with others when we are focused on ourselves and live like orphans. So I, I really hope you don't hear these things and think, geez, I really got to try harder to die to myself. I got to do better. Don't hear that. Because the, the only way this works, the only way this can be real is if we're made new, if we're given the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. We become new people in the gospel, become children of God. None of these things are possible by ourselves. There's not a human, human alive who could live out the, these, these commands of Scripture on our own strength. Implicit in here, Jesus is showing us the truth, the doctrine that we need to be made new. We need to be born again and live in a new way and let Christ live in us. So as you think of these, these, these actions, these bottom bun actions that Jesus calls us to, if they feel impossible and overwhelming, that's good. That means you're hearing, hearing Jesus. And I would just encourage you to consider, what are ways that I can step into them with the prayer that God would help me die to myself, that God would let me experience Christ in me more clearly? Let me just close by reading Galatians 2.20 again. For those of you who call Jesus Lord, who are Christians, let this be your statement, be a prayer that's true for you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we stand before this text. I stand before it. Kind of overwhelmed. So humbled by it, how other it is. How beyond my own ability to do good and be righteous. Father, I pray that you would just show us the joy of this invitation into uh, self-surrender. You would show us the joy of uh, denying ourselves like Jesus did for the joy set before him. We'd experience life with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray against condemnation here and instead 
uh, just to pray for a spirit of invitation into life with you to to leave our, our orphan ways of feeling like we have to do it all ourselves and defend ourselves and hoard stuff for our own security and instead open our hands towards pain, insult, government, our stuff, towards people in need. Would you free us, Father, from, from the stress and the anxiety of clinging to these things as if we're not loved? Bring us into the reality of the gospel for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.